Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Tomorrow, August 21st, is the launch of the Shut em Down campaign called by Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, a network of imprisoned organizers and mutual aid law practitioners. This is a statement on the demonstrations scheduled for August 21st and September 9th, historic days for black struggle inside and against prison, written by Sundiata Jawanza and other JLS members who also work inside the National Lawyers Guild. Quote, in the spirit of abolition, let's shut them down. The Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, JLS, national membership are calling for national shut them down demonstrations to take place on August 21st and September 9th, 2021, the official days of organizing. To show solidarity, people are asked to demonstrate at jails, prisons, and ICE detention centers. Institutions of higher learning, which profit from prison labor, are another location where supporters can gather. The demonstrations are based on the JLS National Organizing Platform, which lists 10 demands. Simply put, we're calling for an end to the prison industrial slave complex, both rife with human rights abuses and a modern-day extension of transatlantic slavery. For we are not beasts. For those who don't know, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak is a collective of imprisoned persons organizing for human rights. JLS's organizing national platform is the National Prison Strike's 10 demands that grew out of the National Prisoners' Strike of 2018. Both selected shut down dates carry significant weight in the modern-day prisoners' movement and abolitionist circles. August 21, 2021 memorializes the historic assassination of George L. Jackson 50 years ago. September 9, 2021 marks the Attica Rebellion, also 50 years ago. The dates also recall the more modern-day historical National Prisoners' Work Strikes of 2016 and 2018. All of the above has helped shape the prisoners' movement as we know it today. Five decades later, human rights violations in U.S. prisons still persist. The attention of the public has been called away from a great national moral hypocrisy. This time of major political upheaval has distracted the people from domestic social issues related to abolition. Because distraction and division are the main instruments of empire, we must refuse to be distracted. We refuse to be distracted because our goal remains our collective liberation, to dismantle the prison industrial slave complex. It is important to reaffirm our commitment to this principal objective. Reaffirming our commitment and focus is necessary in order to catalyze the movement forward, to continue pressing for progressive changes in a quickly changing society that wishes to forget its prison and police problems. This is why it's important not to allow this to be a year that we are only talking about the past struggles of people in prison, but a year to demonstrate, educate, network, and strengthen current state and national decarceration and abolitionist agendas." Unquote. The New York City Police Department, or NYPD, is the country's largest police force. It has an $11 billion budget and arsenal of chemical weapons, tanks, sniper units, surveillance towers, and sound grenades. In addition to the money it receives from the city, the NYPD has another source of funding, the secretive New York City Police Foundation, which contributes money to the NYPD and is hidden from public scrutiny. The Police Foundation is a private organization funded by billion-dollar corporations that funnels private money under the table to the NYPD. A few of its donors include Citibank, Target, Bank of America, and the New York Giants. During the 2020 New York City budget negotiations, 
The City Council ordered the NYPD disclose all private contributions, but the department refused. Instead, it put the onus of releasing this information on the private donors, thereby removing the department from accountability and pushing it off to their donors, who have no commitment to telling the public the truth. Critics of the NYPD hold that the first step in ending the flow of private money to the NYPD is establishing transparency. They're demanding that foundation board members disclose the foundation's contributions to the NYPD. Critics contend that instead of supporting community-based public safety initiatives, the foundation has embraced expanding policing in ways that harm black and brown communities and avoid public oversight. The New York City Police Foundation isn't alone. There are more than 250 police foundations throughout the country receiving corporate cash that the public has no knowledge of. Palestinian Rafat Darawish is 33 days into a hunger strike protesting his detention in an Israeli prison under an administrative detention order. Administrative detention is a practice that has grown more common since the Second Intifada in 2000 and is used to hold Palestinian citizens in Israeli prisons without charges or trial. Darawish is a former political prisoner and his condition is reportedly deteriorating. As of last month, 540 Palestinians were held under administrative detention orders, including 225 children and 12 elected members of the Legislative Council, according to Ad-Damir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association. Critics contend that Israel's practice of administrative detention is in defiance of international humanitarian law. This week, we share the first of a two-part conversation between Nicole Fleetwood and Nicole Siegel. Fleetwood's recent book, Marking Time, is an exploration of visual art made during incarceration. Fleetwood says, quote, I started working on this book as a way to deal with the grief about so many of my relatives, neighbors, and childhood friends who were spending years, decades, or life sentences in prison. It was also an effort to connect with others who were separated from their loved ones by prisons, parole, policed streets, and other forms of institutional and quotidian violence, unquote. This is Nicole Siegel. I am a Kite Line regular and I teach at Indiana University. And I'm speaking today with my friend and colleague, Nicole Fleetwood, a brilliant artist of popular culture and media. She is currently the James Weldon Johnson Professor of Media, Culture, and Communication at NYU's Steinhardt School. Nicole is the author of Troubling Vision, Performance, Visuality, and Blackness, an iconic work in media studies and black studies in the field of the visual and on racial icons, blackness and the public imagination. And she is also the author of Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, a book published by Harvard University Press just last year in 2020. And it's a, it's a magnificent book. And it's that book that I wanna to talk to you about. So welcome to KiteLine and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you, Miko, for that beautiful introduction, and I am delighted to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So we're talking about Marking Time, your, your recent book, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, and I want to begin with a very general question. At this most abstract and general level, the most, you know, far off perspective, what is this book about? You know, I don't have an elevator pitch. <laughs> 
No, you don't have the, the, the two sentence version. I mean, I, I do have a two sentence version, but then you ask me, I mean, I can say it's about art and visual culture that engages and interrogates the carceral state in its contemporary iteration. Uh -huh. But what I wanted to say was you ask in its broadest, I wanted to say for me, it was it's an experiment in co-creating and cohabitating the world that I, at least I want to belong to. Mm -hmm. And that is one of a type of kind of radical transformative recognition, sociality, relationality that that's not dictated by punitive governance. Mm -hmm. And by punitive governance, I mean all the ways that we inhabit a nation state that is all about forms of punishment or threat of punishment. And you write beautifully about this in terms of even the work of the police, right? And so for me, art became a way of thinking through this, but it could, it, it, it didn't have to be art. It could have been another, it could have been something else that became, that became my guidepost. You know, art right, becomes right. a guidepost for me to think about like, mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, and it, and it was very helpful for me to start talking, you know, sometimes people don't like to share projects at the really, really early stages, mm -hmm. but I actually started lecturing about this way before I knew I was writing a book. I thought, oh, I'm just working on an article that was mm -hmm. actually about prison photography and about visiting my cousins in prison. Mm -hmm. And every time I presented, you know, it would grow into something else. And I, and one of the most impactful experiences I had was going to Cornell, I think in 2012, 2013, it was pretty early mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. and presenting an extremely early version that was basically photo mainly photography and mm -hmm. um, a grad student saying oh how, how he was really impacted by how I spoke about my cousins in prison but he mm -hmm. felt like that there was a kind of distance or formality when I talked about other people in prison mm -hmm. and so it was so and I just sat with that I was like oh I want to be able to recognize love and hold Mm. in my heart everyone who I come in contact with through this book and people even people I don't know right so I wanted mm -hmm. to like figure out like well what does it mean to enact a type of you know I do think love is a practice of is a justice practice so like what mm -hmm. does it mean to really cultivate that right so this book for me is infused with a type of political ethical aesthetic love mm -hmm. you know and so for me, at a broad, in the broadest way, it's like, you know, people use this very, in kind of Pollyanna ways, but what it really, to think about what beloved community in, in its most radical, transformative ways can be as also a type of healing modality. I, I want to get into some of the, some of the concepts that you develop in the book, because they really do feed this overall goal that you've now defined for us so beautifully. So I'm going to jump into a question about the concepts of penal space, penal time, and penal matter. These are three critical concepts that you develop through your analysis of art made by people in prison and people who have been in prison. Could you introduce for Kite Line audiences and explain these concepts, penal space, penal time, penal matter? I would be happy to do that. And I, and I, I would say also like, um, yeah, I'm now at NYU, but for 16 years, I was at Rutgers in American Studies and then yeah. uh, part of the time also in art history. And so some of my framing is also, even though I'm transdisciplinary, it is also like about the kind of people I'm in conversations with. And I'm pretty critical of the canon of art history 
And in some ways I wanted to take some formalist concepts and turn them on their heads. Yeah. Like a type of formalism, like thinking. And so the idea of space, time, and matter are <laughs> often seen as these kind of neutral frameworks that art historians and I would say other cultural historians or even object-centered people might engage. And so I wanted to like really kind of rethink the conditions under which art is produced inside U.S. prisons. And I say U.S. prisons because my, my project is focused on the U.S., but what's been incredible is that I think sometimes when you write with hyper-specificity, uh-huh. it can communicate to a, an audience you never imagined, it, you know, that could, you know, mm-hmm. so I've had people write me from all over the world about this project. And yeah. I, but I think the hyper-specificity is helpful for them. Right. Like it's a way of engaging and then applying as opposed to just writing in, in kind of generalities. And, and hyper specificity helps you not be um, ethnocentric in terms of universalizing an experience that is North American or whatever parts of. I, I wanted to write maybe. about what I could do a deep dive into without making, you know, yeah, exactly. Right. I, mm-hmm. It totally is what. I, and, you know, yeah, yes, yes, yes. And so those concepts. So I was like, what are the, you know. Part of it was also a, it's an ethical practice, but it's also a thought experiment because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've been impacted by prisons by having people I love with all my heart incarcerated and some of them for very long sentences. Right. But I have never lived inside the cell, you know, but I feel like I have psychically dwelled with my cousin in, in that right. space, right? But I haven't lived in it. So I, so what I say it's a thought experiment, but partly I was like, how do I really tune into the very conditions that it would take Jesse Crimes to make Apocalyptine, which is, is a mural that consists of 39 prison bed sheets that he made over a three-year period. Mm. He'd make a bed sheet, have to send it out of prison, make it a, and he wasn't able to put it all together until he was released from prison mm. five years later. So I was really trying to like come up with some concepts that could help me really work through what that means like what What it means means, what are the conditions that prison imposes on an artist exactly and that's kind of like a top down I meant like what does it mean to like I kind of wanted to do it even bottom up like what does Uh it mean to like innovate experiment with plant like when all of this is also like a futurist project because if you're making art in prison you're always planning for the future you're always like oh I gotta get my hand on this thing in order to make this right so it's like it's you're always trying to like you know figure out a moment when you can get like you know access to something that might be akin to scissors or you know that kind of thing so right so there's a way that is also like envisioning a future for themselves you know and so penal space is it is the built environment of prisons it's often the spaces where people make art that might be a workshop space like in San Quentin um, there's a really quite prominent art workshop space that is run by a group that for a long time was, was called arts and corrections but they've been ch- they, uh, partly this kind of normalization of certain abolitionist language they've changed the name of their organization I think I want to say it's transformative arts but I can't remember sorry but it's an organization that whether I'm fully politically aligned with them or not they do really incredible sustained work in prisons across the state of California and I want to recognize their commitment they've been doing this work since for a very long time. And there's a really well-resourced art workshop space that 
gets run out of San Quentin through this organization. But most incarcerated artists are making art in their cells, you know, six uh-huh. foot by nine or five foot by eight or you know, I have an entire chapter that's on solitary confinement. So even the idea of penal space, you know, like, it's just like, right. one, it's about the architecture, the built environment, but it's also about, you know, uh, what I call carceral visuality, this idea of, you know, always, you know, this, the kind of surveillance mechanisms that also are part of the built environment, but they're also psychic and social. And penal space also has to do with one's intimate relationship to self and to carcerality, because what prisons attempt to mandate is that the punished subject's primary relationship is to a state that continues to punish them. I mean, that is like, so that prisons literally lock the incarcerated person into this like paralyzing relationship with the state where the state is always punishing you, right? And so that that's a kind of psychic and social bond that one, you know, that one might want to want to refute or escape. And then how do you escape it? Perhaps feel like one's about, you know, like this kind Mm -hmm. of imaginary worlds or fantasies and a lot of people have written about just like the work of fantasy in prison or thought through the, you know, incarcerated mm-hmm. people talk very powerfully about. The and that, that's fantasy. an element of the concept of penal time, right? Because right. fantasy and speculation distorts time. Having an orientation towards the future is a kind of temporality that is, you know, not unique to a prison, but is present, you know, is constant, as you note, in prison. And that, you know, penal matter is wrestling with the scarcity of art objects, using what is available, transforming things. And also them. wrestling with one's, one's, one's own warehousing. Like James right. Huff made this work called I Am the Economy, where he's thinking right. about himself as penal matter. Is, uh-huh, that's right, yeah. Right, and so a lot of artists are really thinking about themselves as the kind, the, you know. They are the, the raw material. Yeah. And, and that is particularly true in our historical moment in which prison labor is less productive of value than the idling, the warehousing of surplus bodies. Exactly, exactly. And its relationship to speculative and extractive capitalism, right? Yes. Um, But I have to say the thing, the concept, and penal matter just runs throughout the book because I'm just, you know, I really got very fixated for many years and just like, how do people get, but you know, it it was, in some ways, it was kind of ah, like I was like ah, inspired, like you know, a part of it just the innovation, right? And it's like the just kind of ways that people can create beauty, just you know, under under such horrifying conditions, especially in solitary confinement. But I wanted to just say something real quick about yeah. like the space and the matter, penal space, penal matter. In some ways, those are very like I can grasp them. Mm-hmm. But the time concept is so, it's such <laughs> a mind. I mean, it really is because penal temporality is different than any, the, the temporality that non-incarcerated people inhabit, even though you and I are not in the same temporality right now, right? right. But to have your punishment be a measurement of time and, to, and the way that like we in, the, in this kind of modern punitive governance have linked what we see as some kind of social or criminal infraction to time is illogical. Like there's nothing that about like, I wrote a bad check because I am hungry. My children are hungry and you're going to put me in prison for five years. Like what's, how, there's nothing like, that's illogical. It's illogical. And then what does it mean to be in prison for five years while your children might be growing outside of prison in foster care or elsewhere? Right. Those are different temporalities. And to every second, every millisecond that you're in prison is 
you're being punished. Right. So it's to me, it's a really like, I've been, I can't, it's a concept I can't fully grasp mm -hmm. because I haven't, I haven't had to inhabit that time. And the people I know who have inhabited that time when they are released, they're still struggling to like a friend of mine who's has a cousin who was juvenile life without parole and then got out after oh, 30 plus years said that the family had to kind of shake him up from still like rising at the crack of dawn because he was, you know, like just right. for chat, you know, like, so just, um, it stays with people I know who've done, especially who've done long time. Um, I, I've been noticing the relationship that people who were in for a long time have to travel and mm -hmm. just how compelling it is to be able to determine your own mobility. That, that's been interesting to me. So absolutely. So many ways. Well, I, I want to ask about, you know, we're noticing sort of the devastating aspects of penal space, penal time and penal matter. But you also note that these concepts are critical in the construction of abolition geography. And that's Ruthie Gilmore's term for the place of freedom, right? And place being defined in capacious and sophisticated ways. It's not just a, a physical location, but a, a place, a space that has all the contextualization, all the richness that place can have. So I wanted to ask you, what is abolition geography? And how is carceral space related to abolition geography? And how do penal time and penal matter help create this space of freedom? Those are all super great questions that could be like multiple books, I would say, right? <laughs> but what, but yes, I am very influenced by, um, by, by Ruthie Wilson Gilmore and, and Angela Davis. I mean, I just, Deeply. just completely in awe of Angela Davis <laughs> to the, you know, for all kinds of reasons. But I do want to say that one of the things that I find really so moving and powerful about the work, especially of Black feminist abolitionists, is both pointing to how it is about creating a world that we have not yet inhabited, and also that we're 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 doing abolitionist work and creating abolitionist spaces all the time. When we refuse, so it's both. It's like we actually are have been deeply involved for centuries, especially here in this, you know, where we're you know occupying space in a settler colonial state that has been built on dispossession, eradication, and horrifying forms of anti-Indigenous and anti-Black violence. And with that, you know, horrifying white supremacist project, there's always been people not just resisting, but creating other modes of belonging that cannot be fully eradicated or contained or held captive by white supremacist projects. So I think it's both here and future making. It's both here and future making. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, that, the, the, it, the pockets of liberation exist even in the spaces of the tightest state control. And, and maybe in fact, in the spaces where control is tightest is where people at most need to yeah. create these, these little undercommons, these little interstitial spaces where we can be it, free. Yeah, and there's been centuries of people giving us tools for yes. creating abolitionist geographies, abolitionist artists. projects. Yeah, and so for me, it's also like really honoring that history of people of people creating a pedagogy for us to you know use. And I said my 
my method, my, my methodology in my book, actually, it was just watching my family, the women in my family, how they continue to care for and stay in deep loving relationships with imprisoned relatives. Yeah. Yeah. Like watching the in and outs of what that looked like, you know, and a lot of it was resource pooling and, you know, it was just refuting the, the kind of temporalities that said that my cousin Alan will be in prison for life, like just refu- like totally refuting that, you know. So I know I'm not fully answering. I mean, th- your question is making me think about all these things. It's so interesting in terms of thinking about the relationship between abolitionist geographies and even like parcel space. I, you know, I had some really great, really productive conversations with friends who are in the field with us, who, who are doing, her scholars doing, and they're like, oh, why don't you call this abolitionist aesthetics instead of carceral aesthetics? And I was really deliberate in using carceral as a type of undoing of that category through the art making, right? And so it's a kind of like bricolage. It's just like the various, like the history of, you know, I mean, this goes back to like, the Birmingham school and like the way that even like those concepts of like appropriate bricolage and, you know, counter bricolage and all of that, like how it really influenced me when I was thinking about even just like subculture studies that I remember as an undergrad, really, really, really being into that. And also just thinking about what people do with ready-mades with the built environment. And so I wanted to stay really have a sustained engagement with that. And also I did not want to presuppose that like all the work, I'm reading the work through an abolitionist lens, but this doesn't, but all the artists don't necessarily identify. They, you know, there's a range of kind of, there's actually a range of political perspectives that, you know, if you talk to all the artists, I, there's a, a pretty huge range of political perspectives and thoughts about yeah. prison and, you know, ideas from reform to abolition to, I mean, there's, there's a range. Of, so I also wanted to have space for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm someone who really believes in being in conversation with people I don't agree with um, <laughs> and learning deeply from them. And like, you know what I mean? Like that being like that, I, I can only learn when I'm learning from people who have very different perspectives than mm-hmm. I do. And that to me is not accommodationist, but it's actually, it's part of my own, my own journey, you know? That's powerful. Yeah. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense to me to read Marking Time as an argument outside of the readership that would perhaps most obviously appealed to, which is a kind of radical abolitionist readership. And instead, as you're pointing out, to put it in the context of your conversations with people you disagree with, with traditions that you want to challenge, traditions of formal art history, for example, traditions in anthropology. And the the book as a whole really sets itself up so powerfully to do that by choosing to analyze these formal, sometimes formalistic modes of art you know, for example, you don't ever, you don't include in marking time music and dance, which are artistic forms, cultural forms that are, um, first of all, more associated with people of color, especially African-American cultural traditions, and which might be a kind of knee-jerk assumption that, oh, well, when prisoners are engaging in art, what they're doing is music and dance, you know, making hip hop or the kinds of things that surface in TikTok videos, right? And, mm-hmm. But what you're doing here is a is is very deliberate engagement with this other with this series of assumptions inherited from you know settler colonial modes of analyzing art and it's, elevating certain forms over others, right? Certain forms over others, yeah. And and I, I wanted to just notice that 
in your analysis, you're very careful all the time to avoid fetishizing prison artists. You never use that term, right? Or any other term that would suggest this sort of curiosity, this, this kind of breed apart. And, and so your attention to the conditions of making art in confinement is your solution to that, right? You're not ever talking about prison artists in just the ways that Dylan Rodriguez resists talking about prison intellectuals. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And so your your attention to the how the conditions of incarceration shape art or how people on the inside incarcerated people are innovating is radical in and of itself. Thank you to Nicole and Nicole. We'll share the second half of this conversation in next week's episode. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.